Oh, hi. Welcome to the Classroom Critics Podcast, the Film Studies Podcast by Teachers. And uh, tonight we're podcasting live from the Tap House folks in New Hampshire. And uh, this is the real deal, folks. This is the garage band of podcasts. We are, we are not polished. We are just setting up a mic, having a few beverages, talking about the film. But for the first time in the history of the Classroom Critics, we are not talking about a greatness. It has its own sort of greatness. But this is considered a very poor film. It's been called the Citizen Kane of bad films. And uh, many of you know what I'm talking about. It is The Room, written, directed, produced, and starred in by the great Oscar Tommy Wiseau. And I'm here tonight with uh, two of my colleagues, Andrew Martino. From Snoop, we are actually uh, just a stone throw from uh, what is it, the Snoop Penman Corner, the Penman Corner, right? So this is like the hometown uh, Snoop, the getaway. That's right. And, and for those of you listening from far away, Snoop stands for Southern New Hampshire University. <laughs> so um, we are very unscripted tonight. I, I usually, you know, have a, at least a few notes to you know, discuss in the film. But I, we, we just finished watching this uh, within about a half hour ago. Yeah. We went directly from my my place to, to watch this. And in fact, it's the first time Dr. Andrew Martino has seen this movie. And I think I've only sat through it once, uh, two times before. This is maybe the second or third time I've sat, I, you know, I've watched it start to finish in one sitting. And, um, and I really don't, we were talking way over here, there's really not much to say about it. I mean, there's, there's a lot to say about it, but, you know, you almost feel stunned after you watch this film that it was, that someone took the time to write this thing, to conceive it, to put up the money to, to do this thing. Uh, I would echo that sentiment. It doesn't matter how many times you've seen this film. I think this might be five for me in different iterations. And uh, each time I'm just absolutely amazed at how much Tommy Wiseau gets wrong in this movie. Yeah. So wrong it's right. (laughs) It is... Because it's the first time I've ever seen it, and I've heard so much about it, I was kind of prepared that it would be bad. Um, But nothing could prepare me for how bad it actually was. Um, The script is full of non sequiturs. There's a lot of characters that are introduced that that don't go anywhere. Uh, There's so many plot holes in this. Um, Just from a narrative point of view, it it, it fails on every conceivable level. I suppose we could talk about narrative and we could talk about the cinematic aspect of the acting or lack of acting. Sure, um, yeah, we can go from, I mean, we'll, we'll try to organize this as we go. Let's, let's start with the... Can I ask Andrew a question? Absolutely. So you, are just your front-loaded to you in any way other than we're going to watch this bad movie? Is it, has it been on your radar at it, all? It wasn't on my radar till, till Bill told me about it and said this was, you know, probably the worst movie ever made. Um, so, so bad that it was good. So I did come in with that mindset that, you know, I knew that this film was infamous for that. But to, to sit there and watch it, with, literally within the first 
three minutes, you know something is terribly wrong <laughs> with this film. And history is filled with many, film history is filled with many, many poor films. You know, you, you have, um, perhaps we can do an entire episode also yeah. on a, a film called um, The Day the Clown Cried. Oh, gosh. Gary Lewis. Gary Lewis, yeah. Uh, debacle, which was uh, only recently sort of released in a, a very rough cut form that you can actually see. I, I mean, we watched it on YouTube. Uh, relative release tonight. Yeah, that, that's pretty poor. Um, Levistrom is, 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 a, is a fairly awful movie. Yeah, of the science fiction films, like, you know, the Plan 9s and yeah. But this one is in a, it's kind of a category of tone because it's a serious attempt at, um, at a chamber drama, right? Yeah. With in-depth uh, existential themes that he tries to go through. But it's just everything falls flat. So I guess we can kind of go through the category of the categories of what makes it bad. I guess you have to start with uh, the decision to make it. <laughs> uh, his idea, right? His uh, his premise. He sat down and wrote this yeah. film. So he, correct me if I'm wrong, but he did self-finance this, correct? Yeah. He's a, he was a, a go-getter kind of businessman. Uh, made his money, I think, uh, on the docks of San Francisco selling. Souvenirs and tchotchkes and things, wow. uh, and, and was very successful. Got his SAG card doing a commercial for his business. And, uh, you know, just uh, had a dream, and he, he lived it. He, he made a lot of money. I mean, there is some. There are a lot of there are a lot of questions about how he made a fortune because he had about what was it six seven million dollars behind this movie. Yeah. Uh, out of his own pocket. Wow. You know, you don't miss money. You make that from selling. Yeah, cheap souvenirs. You have to t- sell a lot of souvenirs to make that. That's uh... so. I think he had his hand in. Uh, I remember correctly. We, uh, I read the book, The Disaster Artist, the film based on. It. We, we, read that we haven't seen the film of Zach Artist yet, but certainly, uh, certainly we'll have to do soon. But uh, in the book, I, I do recall that he it does go into some uh, speculation of how he made his money. I think he was into real estate. He, he, he had business acumen, definitely. So, I for folks who haven't seen this film, it's more or less, as Bill said, a chamber drama. Uh, it's a gentleman by the name of Johnny, and everyone loves Johnny. He has a, a loving girlfriend and a, a young man whose tuition he pays and whose apartment rent he pays. And he has his best friend, uh, Mark. And yet, for reasons that are never quite explained, his girlfriend just decides to start having an affair with his best friend. And she goes through the film telling everyone what a great guy Johnny is, but she hates him and she doesn't care. And Mark wanders through the film, perpetually confused that he's having an affair. Uh, And Johnny, after having been established ad nauseum, what a great guy he is, finds out about this affair. Tragedy ensues. So that's the that's the bare bones of the plot, if you can say. It's uh, not bare bones. That's it. You nailed it. <laughs> yeah, there are lots of little, you know, odd, you know, non sequitur yeah. sprinkled, you know, within the plot. But Lisa's mother has breast cancer, and Denny, the young man, has uh, a drug problem. Neither of those two narrative uh, streams are explored. They're introduced and then they're left. Yes. So let's start with the uh, yeah the, the script itself. It's uh, and I was saying you know, during this film as we were watching this, I'm, I'm just wondering how many drafts did they go through before they said you know what this 
this is the filming script that we're going to use. And if it's, if it's not the first draft, let's say it's the fifth draft or the tenth draft. I mean, how horrible does this, do you think the first draft was? <laughs> I, it's clear he doesn't have an editor, um, or, or he has an editor that's a friend of his that's actually in the film. Yes. Um, I, I suppose that the film is made up of a lot of friends. Uh, some of the some of the parts I, I, I hear are cast um, as you would a, a normal movie. But um, this is a person who uh, we were joking during the film. I said this is not only a person who failed. Screenwriting 101 is he's never read a book. Um, he doesn't know how dialogue works, or uh, you know, let alone um, how, to, how a character grows in, in, in a short amount of time. Uh, it misses on almost every level. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're talking about drafting. You, the book that was written about the filming of this movie is called The Disaster Artist. It's written by Greg Sestero, who plays the character of Mark and is, is Tommy Wiseau's friend in real life. And according to Greg, one of the early drafts of the film, uh, Tommy wanted the character of Johnny to be a vampire. And at the end of the movie, it's revealed that he's a vampire and he floats away in his flying car. But he couldn't afford that special effect, so they wrote that out of the script. <laughs> now, to Tommy Wiseau refutes much of the book yeah. and says that's not true, but I, I have no doubt that yeah, it's true. He's definitely a revisionist because uh, after the film was laughed at that, you know, from its opening night on, it was a complete, you know, people were just dying, you know, we had this, I guess, this pretty elaborate uh, premiere, you know, with limos and red carpet and all that, and it turns out everyone was cracking up from the very beginning of the film. Well, uh, it didn't take long for him to say, you know what, this was, this was actually uh, a dark comedy, yeah. You know? Yeah, I meant to do that all along. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, he does seem to attempt at doing some of the things you're supposed to do when you write, you know, like he says, okay, I, I guess I need a, some comic relief here. So, like some intentional comic relief. Yeah. So he, you know, he plugs in that scene with that, um, that dude who, uh, the character's name, who talks about how he left his under, the underwears. In his oh, yeah. I don't know this character has any. No, I don't <laughs> he, recall. Yeah, he, he and his girlfriend go into Tommy's apartment to make out. Yeah. They get caught, and then he later tells a story about how he had to come back in and get his underwear because somebody saw it. And that's, um, that's hilarious. <laughs> and it was a good 30, 30 seconds to a minute devoted to that so-called trauma relief. Well, well, a little longer because they, they show the actual scene and then yeah. they show the retelling of the scene later while they're inexplicably standing in the corner of an alley playing football. Right. Yeah. And then uh, Mark comes in and sort of hands him the football and he falls over and he's, he looks like he, was, you know, he might have all been shot in the stomach. You know, that's how he reacted to it. But, uh, you know, this very strange, bizarre lines in, uh, in the book of Disaster Artist they go into how he would not allow anyone to uh, say his lines in any other way because he thought the lines were perfect the way they were. For example, the, uh, the line where he says, uh, Mark's character tells Peter, I believe it's uh, psychologist, psychologist yeah. to uh, keep your opinions in your pocket. Now that, no one has ever said that ever yeah. in the history of mankind. Keep your opinions in your pocket. He, I guess he was saying to Tommy, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of a, a little awkward. I'd say something else, and I guess he wouldn't budge on it. So very, very odd lines like that. Well, yeah. he was paying the checks. I mean, he was, you know, issuing <laughs> the checks. So it is certainly, it, it is his project and his vision. 
um, that, that comes through. And I suppose he succeeded at that. Yeah. He had a clear idea in his mind of what he wanted to do. And, and I think he succeeded yeah. In, yeah. in doing what he wanted to do. It just it, it fails for me. Um, and I, I assume it fails for most everyone else who enjoys film. <laughs> I think it's an astonishing achievement in that, aside from the stock footage, which is overused throughout yeah. to establish that they're in San Francisco, there's not a moment of competence in the film. Uh, there's, there's no facing, no editing, no, no uh, nothing that works. It, it's extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah. The yes. music's poor, you know, uh, yeah. the music's cut rate, you know, you probably hired some, uh, you know, some third-rate composer. I mean, Krista? Something, yeah. Kitka? <laughs> Williams? That was it, yeah, something like that. With these uh, extremely dated, I mean, they were dated in 2004, uh, these cheesy romantic ballads during the four or five love scenes that they have it again are, are from 1987 it seems like they've been lifted from a uh, you know a, a show showcase in the station uh, what was the line the lyric that, that stands out I'm, I'm here with you and you're here yeah. with me that's yeah. Yeah, very very yin and yang uh, that sort of establishment of place yeah um, but, Walter, you said something I think that's quite important is the fact that not only does the script fail, but the narrative facing, the, cine, the cinematic narrative fails as well. It's, they're not working together. Uh, you could you could have a bad movie where at least all of the parts are working together. This is a film where nothing seems to gel. There's no juxtaposition uh, at all. Now, forgive me, I don't remember the, the right uh, co-writer of the movie, uh, the master artist, Greg uh, Sister, had a co-writer. Uh, I heard him in the interview say that the, uh, the room is, it, it seems like, if you to describe what the room is as a film, it's like a movie that was produced by aliens who learned, um, you know, how to make a movie, you know, in, in, in an hour, and then decided to film it on film. You know, it just has that very, uh, it just has something very off about it. It just makes it a very unique bad movie. It's not even a bad student film. It goes beyond that uh, in many ways. Right. It reminds me, you know, back in the in the '60s, there was a, I can't remember his name, but he uh, same situation. He was a man who bet his friend that he could make a movie and get it released in the theaters, and he made uh, *Manos: Hands of Fate*, which you know, speak Spanish, translate to hands, hands of fate. Yeah. And uh, the film is legendary as well. And it's it's a little bit technically worse than this one. But they make the same mistakes, and um, you know people were not quite as media savvy, and, you know, as, as, as they are today. And it's, it would be interesting to watch that as well, because again, it's, yeah. it's uh, you know we all go to movies doesn't mean we could make one necessarily. Like, I drive a car, and I couldn't build one. This would be, I think, the cinematic equivalent of if I tried to build a car. Yeah, that's what it would look like. It would have some executive function. Right. But the difference is that what makes this movie, this movie unique is most horrible movies have uh, extremely low budgets. Yeah. I mean, Man of the Fate will have, even for its time, had a low budget. Most of these, you know, uh, horrible sci-fi films from the early 60s or whatever had very low budgets. And tell me why so. You had... I mean, it's, it's a low, you, you can make the argument that it's a low budget for Hollywood so it's six, seven million dollars. But uh, you put six, seven million dollars in the hands of, I don't know, 
many independents want to make groups. You get something really nice. Well, if you put that into the hands of somebody like Richard Rodriguez, who did El Mariachi, and, and he did it on his credit card, <laughs> which I think is a tremendous film. Yes. Um, like you see the difference between somebody who actually studied film, right. and, and, and I don't necessarily need studied film and going to a formal school to study film, but just watched films and, right. and, and internalized them. Right. Right. Um, that's, that's this guy's problem. He, didn't, he, he has never internalized what it means to, to, to make a film. So he uses some legit tools of the trade. We had access to, you know, um, again, they were probably second rate technicians in the LA area. He employed them, he gave them their fee, you know, and, and uh, he didn't get a bunch of necessarily quite the friends to help him out. You know, he got industry professionals. Oh, he used green screen technology when he didn't need to. You know. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he built that whole rooftop set and then just kept projecting different uh, cityscapes <laughs> behind it. And his friends at the film were all pointing out that we have a real roof that overlooks San Francisco in this building. Let's go film there. And he insisted instead on recreating. I mean, I guess in a sense, you're committed to movie magic. And I'm pretty sure he used 35 millimeter film. But I don't know if you heard this, but I, in the book it also talks about how he also filmed it digitally. So he had two cameras going for no reason. So it goes to show you what, you know, what's possible if you put a decent budget in this So how would you, as, as a classroom tool, let's say, aside from the you know, 15 minutes of really uncomfortable sex in the building, you take that out and show this to a film class um, for, for executive purposes and, and ask them, tell me why this film doesn't work. And, and the, you know, the students are going to be looking at that and well, where do I start? How would, how would you frame that? For them? How would you say, you know, what do we take away from this? Yeah. You know, I think you'd have to start with, uh, you know, I do a, a unit called uh, Big Three. You know, I kind of start off my courses with this unit. And uh, the premise is these are three films that many critics and scholars deem as the, they're, they often show up at the top of the uh, the greatest American films in the West, and that's Citizen King, Casablanca, and Godfather. So after watching all three of those, perhaps show uh, you know, a, a version of, uh, or show a uh, screen of the, the room. It'd be interesting to ask them, you know, we have to be, this is not a school appropriate film, but you wonder what they would say. You know, we ask them, okay, what does this film not do? I mean, there'd be no end of discussion. You know, how does this film fail? I think it starts, like most film movies, it starts with the script. Yeah. It starts with the plot. Do you have characters who are compelling, who you care about, that you want to invest in, that you empathize with? And I, I don't think for it, for it, Which character do you have to empathize with in this film? The, the dog in the flower shop. I mean, they feel <laughs> terrible yeah. for that dog. There really is. I mean, that's a great point. There's no character. That, that you empathize with in this film. I suppose that the, the mother, you would want to, but she comes off as just an awful human being. Um, I mean, there's, there's, Johnny, you there's, 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 um, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. There, there's just these sort of attempts at empathy or, or to elicit empathy, you know. Um, Greg is conflicted. Johnny's a great guy being betrayed. Denny is a simpleton, I guess. Uh, the mother has breast cancer, so we're all exposed to some some token degree go, oh, all these lies matter. And then they don't. No offense, not the cheap human life, yeah. but they don't matter. Well, one of the things that, that struck me 
most of all was how anti-women this film is. Um, you know, everything goes to, to, to blame the, the girlfriend. Um, you know, the, the mother-in-law says you need him because he provides financial support. Uh, maybe it's because we're now thinking in the Me Too movement. Uh, that's, the, that's the world we're living in, so we're hypersensitive to that. But this is really an anti-woman sort yeah, of film. You get the impression that this is how Tommy views the way he was treated in a past relationship. Yeah. He probably felt very jilted by something he was Now, here's an odd fact from, uh, again, from the disaster. You would never get a million years guess the film that was a revelation for Tommy Wiseau and spurred him to make this film. According to Greg Sestero, uh, he went and saw the talented Mr. Ripley, and, and that made him want to make this film. I bet. I that, that he somehow saw something in that character that, that, that he related to and he wanted to make his own film. I mean, none, none of that's in here. He, yeah, I, I, I can't see that connection at all. Um, certainly next a few things uh, very incompetently, but uh, you know, there's the term you partly so that's connected uh, right from uh, Rebel About a Cause. Yeah. Where, uh, I forget, uh, character, I think Jim Jim's he screams to his parents, so to begin to get tearing them apart. You know, uh, you know, obviously that's a pretty moving moment in the movie. And, but, and, uh, and Johnny does it, it is probably the most rocky moment in the history. And then, of course, we have the trashing of the bedroom at the end, which is uh, clearly hit from Citizen Kane, which is a heart-wrenching moment of that film. But, uh, yeah, I mean, Johnny is a sympathetic character. No, I mean, what's, he's probably the most sympathetic of all of them, but there's something about it that's not sympathetic. You know, uh, stuff that sympathizes with that naive, I guess. You know, uh, Going back to your original question about how would we show this into a class, the interesting aspect might be just to show four films and insert that one in and not say <laughs> anything about it and just get the students' reaction after they've seen you know, The Godfather, or, you know, something, it's just, absolutely. Now, there'd be giggles. Yeah. I mean, kids are savvy enough now yeah. to catch on to that, you know. Uh, they, they know very, you know, very soon that they're watching a pretty bad movie. Well, we've seen better cinematography from YouTube studies than in <laughs> this film. <laughs> uh, I don't know, some of those establishing shots were pretty on point. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, that, that's, that's true. We have to give them credit. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's also a lesson. In, you know, you're teaching this in the context of, let's say, a writing class, right? You know, how often um, what you don't include is, you know, art, the art of editing, the art of taking out what you think is superfluous is an extremely necessary art of, um, part of the art of writing. In almost everything in this movie, uh, if you were to edit it down to its bare essence, the movie would be 10 minutes long. Right? Yeah. It would be a short film. If you have crazy uh, exposition that goes nowhere, you have scenes like the flower shop scene that means absolutely nothing. You have that scene in the, uh, the cafe, right? Where you have like three people ordering. You don't need to uh, sit through, you know, something that's two with people ordering. Do you think he did that because he wanted to reestablish again and again how much how much people liked Johnny as a character? Because all of those people knew who he was, right? So when he walks in, they say, "Oh, hi, Johnny," as if he's you know this regular in the neighborhood, and this he's well respected and, and people like him. 
and, you know, it's it's a lousy way to do it. It's it's inauthentic, but perhaps from that was probably wrong. Yeah, but a good writer can establish something that, uh, in you know two seconds. Yeah. Oh, right. That yeah. Is, yeah. Absolutely. A hack writer will have to take you know two minutes. Well, we've seen with, you know, there's a couple of videos on YouTube. Uh, one comes to mind where somebody re-edited The Shining into a, uh, a feel-good movie. <laughs> wow. And uh, I think they set it to um, to uh, Salisbury Hill. Salisbury Hill. And someone else has has edited the, the god-awful uh, Star Wars prequels into a cohesive film. Could you, given you know no restrictions, edit this into a, a compelling story just based on what he shot in the existing footage? You think that could be done? Uh, very good question. I think this is an exception. I think it's beyond repair. I agree. Yeah, I don't think there's any. There's no redeeming quality uh, to this. Be, uh, it would be an interesting exercise. Could you just? Could you, well, maybe the challenge would be: could you edit this down into a compelling short film? Not a feature, but a short film. Or a trailer. How about just a trailer? There you go. But each yeah. character is so inconsistent in terms of, like, if you're trying to, like, pick and choose an arc for any one of these guys, Mark, Greg, uh, I mean, sorry, Mark, Tommy, or uh, Lisa, none of them, they all change emotion and direction without any, any grounding impetus. But I don't know if you could. I don't know if there'd be anything sustainable. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I think the idea of write a compelling story you have the characters that want something and usually you should boil, be able to boil it down to one thing the characters who want one thing and if I, was, if I were to ask you what does Tommy want I don't know I don't, I don't know what he wants and, you know, he wants uh, to marry Lisa is that interesting enough for a drama you know uh, what does Lisa want good luck with that you know with the computer as a character it's very tough to but I do think that that's where the most promise resides with Lisa. You can make her, I think, into a really interesting character um, if done correctly. Different actress, you know, in all the way, and, and refilm that. That might have that might have some appeal. I wonder what you wonder what her motivation is. If you were to ask, who would get a cohesive answer? But if you ask uh, Tommy, like so, what? Was Lisa's, Lisa's motivation behind messing with everyone, messing with you know Johnny and messing with uh, Mark? What's her motivation? Peter warns that she's a sociopath, but in the end, she's crying genuine tears yeah. and seeing regret. Uh, so I don't know if, uh, <laughs> if that's right. even consistent. <laughs> what does Mark want? You know, who knows? We certainly don't know what. Uh, uh, kid, his name? Denny. Denny. What does he want? <laughs> so, and the whole scene where Denny, Denny tells Tommy of his love for uh, or Johnny, I get that mixed up. Of his love for for Lisa, and there's there's no emotion on on Johnny's face whatsoever. He's not shocked. He's not. Uh, it's just straight. It's supposed to show you. You really have to know. You know, when you sit down and write a script, you gotta know in your head. You know what these who these characters are, what they want. Uh, it, it's interesting you say that because when we watched at the end the interview that that he 
had done. He talked about that, about how being a director, I think the question was, did you prefer being a director or an actor? And he said, the director's harder, because you have to have all of, you're responsible for all of these things. You have to have that vision. And I think he used the word vision. Right. Well, it's, yeah. it's hard not to, it's hard to take this film seriously and, and, and not feel bad for this guy, in, in, in a way. Yeah, I mean, not to mention that, you know, when people go to see this film, you know, this is one of the, this, this is a cult, this is a cult classic now, you know, it's become a cult classic. This, uh, this movie is being streamed somewhere right now, probably in New York City, LA, or Boston. Uh, let's see what time is it now, it's not, it's nine, uh, uh, oh, okay. Um, it's probably uh, being filmed somewhere, and you have college students, you know, lining up in droves to see it. And uh, here I was going with this, but it's it's a, it's a cult movie. What did you say? Well, what was we lost going? Because I was going to for it. <laughs> but um, how not, how we, we you know it's hard not to feel sorry for it. That's what I was going to say. Because it's so serious. Yeah. Well, he thinks it's so serious. Right. Right. So okay. So he shows up to these these screenings sometimes and I've seen clips on YouTube you can see you know these um, you know these screenings these films where he walks in and everyone cheers at, you know cheers him on and they laugh and, and you know, I say to myself I wonder if he knows that they're that they're laughing at him I think he does I get the sense with the interviews and this is just a take on it that they once the film you know obviously did it poorly and then as weirdly well as it did yeah that he said I'm, I'm gonna buy into this shit part of it and that the interviews are just like, shit uh, I think that when he like you showed me that brief uh, sitcom he tried to make where he was trying to be bad the neighbors and, and he does it so badly that he loses any charm like this he was trying to be good yeah and then once he realized you know, I think being a savvy salesman he is he realized he had a hot property I think that's a put on to a degree, as much as anyone can be a put on. And, uh, you know, I think, like, for example, you were saying he's talking about being, that there is a difference between being an actor and a director. Yeah. You know, I think there's some nuggets of truth in that, but I think for the most part, and his questions are so determinedly dodging the questions that he's being asked. And you even saw he, he overdubs some of the yeah. answers. <laughs> so I, I think that it's stick to a degree. Sorry, can I do that back, Thank you. Yeah, so it's, yeah, there's part of it that's still bad. But, but you know, he's, he's, he achieved what he wanted in a sense where he's, he's famous now. Yeah. He's already he's famous. Four films he made. Yeah. And, and, and did all on his own. Oh, he's made millions of films. DVD sales. Yeah. Cult screenings, college visits. Uh, that's, that's a gold mine. Well, I think that's the, for me, the more interesting part, probably for, for everyone, is the story behind the story. Yeah. So that's, 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 you know, the disaster artist and, and everything that follows. So. I, I think it's a metaphor for every artist who secretly, deep down, is insecure. First yeah. of all, you have to have the hubris to create art. Yeah. And then secretly, you know, we've had talks about this, about how insecure we are, is what, is what we're doing really any good at all. I think there's a fearlessness to Tommy Wiseau, which I, I kind of admire. Yeah. And, uh, I couldn't have done what he did. I couldn't have uh, put that money together and done it and, and then turned it into something. And after all of the reviews, the people not fall into a hole, yeah. but actually go out and embrace the the, the bad reviews. Yeah. So, yeah, you're right. I, I just convinced me of that. <laughs> <laughs> 
So there's an Edwood Edwood quality. Piece. Yeah, exactly right. Oh, so this is the American Dream. Okay. Definitely. Nice. He's done well for himself. Uh, I'd like to beat him. Imagine if he was sitting there here. Oh, that would be great to have him here. <laughs> And, uh, you know, whatever you sometimes you go on YouTube and you just type in, tell me why someone could do it. And uh, you'll see clips of talking about all sorts of things. You know, there's a clip of him talking about citizen hate. There's a clip of him talking about love. And uh, it's, it's, it's really, uh, inter- he's very interesting when you, when you listen to him. He's mainly interesting because he's very, you know, he's very cryptic and by the time he's finished the statement, you don't really know what he said. <laughs> and I, I wonder, as you sort of suggested, I wonder how much that part he's playing. So the guy could be crazy like a fox, really. Um, he's, he's a genius. Okay. Yeah. Uh, this, if this whole thing from the, from the beginning is an act, um, then I, I would say he's a, he's a comedic genius. And that's, <laughs> and that's everything from the hair, which is you know more than a bit ridiculous, to the way he dresses and, you know demeanor, uh, everything about him, it's hard to take seriously, but again, maybe that's, maybe that's the, the path we're supposed to, to go down. And I, I don't think it is, I don't think it is, it is, it is, it is, it is, it is. as much as it can be, I mean, you know, look at, say, how much of certain things are and how much are, are really, where, how far deep down can you go and, and, and run out of, of the end? Yeah, I, I, there is that case also where you play the part so often that you do become that part. So he could have started off, and that you know I, I don't know I don't know much about him, um, but it, it's certainly interesting. We're here talking about it, doing a podcast about it. So he he has done something right. Uh, he came out. He came from nowhere. Out of yeah. nowhere. I mean, uh, there isn't much footage of him before the part that hit. Uh, there's that one you can see a little clip of him doing like uh, this commercial for back it looks like you know, early 90s late 80s and mm-hmm. him like doing a commercial for uh, he had this store I guess called uh, like, like street you know, like street, street clothing something like that and um, I believe it he it featured him doing uh, a little bit from him to be or not to be uh, and he actually he went to um he went to the actors, uh, the actors school. And, uh, really? He went to New York or LA, but he went to, uh, you know, that's where he met Greg. LA. LA. Yeah. So he's trained. So, if you make another film, think, you know, think back to Rocky Horror Picture Show. Richard O'Brien makes this film. Yeah. Puts everything into it. Turns out to be campy. Midnight Call Classic. So he makes another film. I can't remember the name of it. Something about the fashion industry. Uh, I can't remember. And, and he tries to capture that lightning in a bottle again. Shock uh, something. Shock value. Shock uh, something. And of course, it doesn't, it doesn't come close because he's trying to do it again. Yeah. Why is there a second if he makes another film? It'd be interesting. Is he going to try to be campy, try to be serious, uh, try to do that sitcom thing? That script uh, it's kind of like, uh, you know, Chubby Checker has a song, The Twist, right? Yeah. The year after, what do you think he came up with? He came up with a song that, you know, the next summer after that, he had a song called What's Twist Again. 
<laughs> Have you ever heard of what's twist again? Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, to go back to Rocky Horror, at least, you know, Tim Curry and, and, and Susan Sarandon merge out of that. Yeah. Uh, I don't see actors of their caliber emerging out of this particular film. No. Oh, shock treatment. Um, uh, Sestero made a couple of B movies or C movies. I know one of them was Puppet Master 2, and actually people say it's not horrible. We know that, and, and we. But the clients, she's not into prostitution, so it's not that kind of a client. Uh, she reiterates again and again in the film, which I found very interesting. I, I, no one's going to tell me what to do, but me. So she is taking a stand in that sense, where she is going to deliberately do what she wants to do. But it comes off so unbelievably sexist in the film that it, it loses the power that it could have had, in a way. She is a woman who is evil in the way that men who don't understand women think women are evil. Yeah. Because they're, they're capricious for no reason. Yeah. I'm exactly. just going to change my mind for, with no inner inner. I'm just going to pretend I'm pregnant to make it interesting. Yeah. I mean, it was not the most bizarre curveball. Right. I mean... <laughs> She makes up this uh, story that she's pregnant just to make it interesting. What does that mean? Exactly. <laughs> because she is bored with him. 
uh, and she's in love with someone else. She doesn't even like him any longer, she tells us. Um, or tells her mother or her friend. <laughs> so, that, again, major plot holes there. Yeah. Think of the characters. What is it? Uh, I know Clint Eastwood did a riff on it in um, uh, Fistful of Dollars. I think it was the original with Yojimbo, the Japanese film where the character comes in and he plays two sides of the town against each other for yeah. no particular reason. Uh, the Coen brothers covered that at Miller's Crossing yep. where the character just throws a monkey wrench in the works and, and watches the chaos. And those things are incredibly compelling. And then here's just, I'm just, I'm bored. I'm and there's nothing around the character to make it do something. But, Andrew, you have a good point. But here we are, sitting here, comparing Tommy Wise yeah, up. Right, exactly. <laughs> Citizen Kane and Yojimbo and, uh, and all the great movies that, uh, that right. they exist in the same universe. So the fools uh, actually are us. <laughs> sitting here talking about this film. <laughs> Tommy, if you're listening to this, come and talk to us. We'd love to interview you. You got us. I, I have a Tommy Wise little bobblehead in my room that speaks three phrases for the movie. And one of my prized possessions is a photograph a student sent me of her and Tommy and Greg uh, from a campus visit. Really? Yeah. Wow. Tommy Pick. So, uh, oh, well, I, mean, I don't think it's true. Uh, yeah, I have it on my computer. It's, uh, she just uh, sent it to me. But he's, he's kind of short. Is it? But, uh, so, yeah, who's, who's, who's the bigger fool, the fool or the fool who follows him? Or the fool, <laughs> Obi-Wan Kenobi there. Yeah. Yeah. But we are interested in film. Uh, we're interested in, in the application of film, not just in art, but in the classroom. And I suppose this film does have an impact. The ones up there in that pantheon, Bill and I have these, this, this kind of set of rules because we like we like things that are bad, but they have to be bad by accident. There has to be a sincerity to them. Not, again, yeah. like I mentioned, not like a Sharknado where they're right. trying. I think that's dreadful. Um, but but these folks, they, they shot for the stars. They missed, yeah. but they, you know, they, they, they did it. As I said earlier, he compared himself to Tennessee Williams in the earlier movie poster ads. So he thought he was writing some profound, uh, you know, uh, philosophical, bold morality tale. He has tapped into the human condition. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's worth mentioning too some of the uh, just these odd little things that pop up, pop in the film, like you know, the fact that you know, when, you know, she's trying to get him drunk. For what, we don't even know why. Right? Is there is there anything? I took it to, she she got him drunk to set him up for the whole I, I he slapped me. Yeah, he okay. couldn't so he couldn't he would be too so drunk he wouldn't remember he right yeah yeah so of course she uh, forced him as they uh, as they yell out during one of you know these midnight screams Scotch cut right it looks like he has a uh, glasses of uh, Scotch or bourbon she pours in the, uh, <laughs> the vodka on top of it neat too warm warm and neat. Right. They, but they run out of scotch because in the, in the later scene when they're really drunk, the rest of the straight vodka. Yeah, nothing like straight cutting it down. Not water. She's wearing his tie. It's, uh, you know, when you're feeling really crazy, you gotta tie that tie on. The order of pizza, I forget what exactly what it is, but it's pesto something. It's kind of a crazy, uh, crazy combo. That means the uh, thing that some people have noticed before the, um, the spoons on the wall. Spoons, yeah. I didn't notice that. Framed spoons. They needed to um, decorate the set. Yeah. And so they sent the set designer out to purchase a bunch of pictures to scatter around the apartment. And they all came 
as pictures do of pre-existing photos in of school. And they were like, we'll take them out and replace them. And Tommy said, leave them in. So you can see them occasionally in the background. Pictures of spoons. Yeah, another. I now I have to go back and rewatch this do. film for all the few you know, analyze it. Yeah. yeah, so when they have these midnight screenings during those scenes, people throw spoons, plastic spoons. Is that right? I didn't, I didn't know about the spoons. Yeah. Wow. Very <laughs> the whole universe you've introduced. I guess not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they show it at um, Coolidge Corner. Yeah, Boston. Yeah. You know, that's right. I think so. Yeah. Um, yeah, they do that at. Uh, Maybe even once a month, though. So, uh, at midnight. And you know, he, he gets residuals from that. Yeah. You know, around the country. He's pretty protective of them, too, because uh, you can't you can't download this. The only way to get this, a copy of this film is to order the DVD. So you can't even buy it on Amazon? You have to get... Well, you can buy it on Amazon, but only the DVD. You only the... Okay. It's not streaming, streaming anywhere. I, yeah. You know, Riff, Riff Tracks did it, and... Uh, that was simulcast in theaters nationwide. Um, it was hilarious, by the way. And they did. That's the District Science Theater 3000 guys did. And you know they had to pay royalties for that. So yeah. he's, he's definitely uh, doing well with it. And it's good for him. Definitely. Well, I, I suppose it is a talking point more than a lot of the Hollywood films that are coming out today. Which are just sequels of a sequel of a sequel. And God forbid another comic book hero comes up. <laughs> well, what's worse than a, a guy like this with, with no knowledge, skill, or talent, or ability who creates this thing and takes off, or someone with millions of dollars, experience, surrounded by the best in the business, still churning out yeah. something unwatchable? Yeah. You know, what are some of the worst movies that should have been good uh, that have come out? Couple of years, you, know, you watch it and you're just like, oh, Peter Rabbit. Yeah. This is one that's out now, I guess. The beloved children's tale, Beatrix Potter. And, um, well, maybe that's maybe that's the reason. This this guy might be the product of Hollywood having absolutely no imagination any longer, because they don't put out. You know, the, the great films are few and far between today. Does anybody remember, you know, uh, any of the Avenger films after they watched them or, or anything that made these huge uh, box office sales? The sci-fi and comic book movies used to be the B-movies. Yeah. And the, right. the movies about, you know, it's about people and about real issues used to be the, the A-list films. Now, yeah. it's, now it's switched. You know, the, the lower budget films are the ones that are about... Just the machine is what's making money. I mean, I, I don't mind them. They're like, but they are like you said, the popcorn movies. You're they're fun, them, they're but done. they're disposable. Yeah. Right. That's, that's a great way to put it. Like the three of us went to see Phantom Thread, right. and uh, you know, there there wasn't a lot of people in that theater when we really saw that. We went to go see uh, Wonder Wheel. Yeah, and uh, it was on it was on the. Uh, it, just, it might have been the same weekend, the opening weekend of the Star Wars. It was, right? yeah. And, uh, and we, we had to basically step over people to get to the, uh, the Wonder Wheel entrance. And the person at the, uh, who was taking our tickets was like, what, what movie? She had to actually look at her yes. <laughs> Where are you going? We were like Elvis. We had the theater to ourselves. <laughs> yeah, I actually think there were two other people in front of us. That was it. I think it was in the back of us. 
Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no matter what, if you're, if you're sitting in an empty theater, people walk yeah. in, they're going to sit right back in the future. That's exactly right. I do think, and I, I give the superhero movies some cre- credit here. Like, I have a student in my class, you know, you know, you have her, uh, Marley, and uh, she loves to endlessly discuss. She's a big fan of the comics and superheroes. Yeah. And so when you think of people like Lucas or Spielberg, who cut their teeth on watching old serials and those throwaway B movies and stuff. But they've become the A movies yeah. you now. And then, as you said, we go see Phantom Thread uh, and you know, in the theater, it's a film that will do well on the awards night for the yeah. You know, film companies want to make $500 million on a movie. They're not happy to make it. You can't even make your money back. You have to make three times. Otherwise, they won't bother. Like if they only make twenty million dollars profit, it would be considered a failure. failure. And it has to do it in the, in the opening weekends too. So they're not investing the time in films any longer that they used to. Uh, that they used to in, you know, ten years ago. And you're right. Some of the superhero films, I, 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 again, I think they're very fun to watch. But uh, but there was a time when again that was the, the minority of films that yeah. we produced, and now it's. I once heard I heard him describe once in an interview. He looks like in a Jean-Claude Van Damme film. He looks like the villain's the villain sidekick who gets killed first. Yeah, he does. <laughs> he does. <laughs> the vaguely vaguely Slavic uh, yes, exactly. drug dealer and his sister. <laughs> um, all right. Well, some great stuff in the formal movie if you're watching it. Go see it. <laughs> Go see it, yes, absolutely. Uh, it's, it's worth the two hours. You'll know, get a good laugh. So. Uh, well, I think next time we'll have to watch, we'll, we'll have to review a very, very good movie to make up for this. Yeah. We've, we've pretty much reviewed most of the, the, <laughs> the greatest of all time, but we'll have to way back and find something excellent. So. So I guess we'll call that a wrap, right? Fantastic. It's a wrap. All right. So uh, thank you, everyone, for joining us tonight. We're, uh, again, we're at the Tap House, and we uh, thank the Tap House people here for letting us uh, set up a mic. It's uh, late on a Sunday night. They're about to close. They're giving us dirty looks. And they're fine. They're very nice. They're very nice people. But, uh, we'll let them close up. And uh, we uh, hope you'll go on to uh, our Facebook page, Boston Critics, and uh, rate us on iTunes. Let us know uh, what you think about uh, this film or any other films that we have reviewed and let us know what you want to hear us uh, review in the future. And for uh, Andrew Martino and Walter Freeman, I am Bill Ivers, and uh, we are the Classroom Critics. Thank you for joining us. Take care.